Medieval comes from two Latin words meaning Middle Age. But the terms the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages do not accurately describe the time frame they represent. These designations, apparently chosen by non-Christian historians, give that era a negative and unimportant connotation. Medieval history is in the middle, they tell us, between the great classical period of ancient Greece and Rome and the even greater modern world of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. It was a dark age because it was dominated by Christianity. One thousand years of Christendom from which the enlightenment of the 18th century freed us, they tell us. Though I prefer to call the enlightenment the endarkenment. Medieval history is that time period from the migration of northern and and eastern Europeans, for example, the Celtic and later the Germanic peoples, and the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. So now understand that's the time frame of the Middle Ages. From the time of the migrations of the northern and eastern Europeans and the fall of the Western Empire in the 5th century to the, over the next thousand years to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. It is the transition from the ancient Greek-Roman civilization to the Roman-German civilization. And the connecting link is Christianity, which had a culturally transforming influence on the former and a recreative and forming influence on the later. Medieval Christendom was a development of the, the Catholicism of the early church and a preparation for the Protestant Reformation. Its main forces were the papacy, monasticism, scholasticism, mysticism. As Philip Schaff writes of this period, the medieval light was indeed the borrowed star and moonlight of ecclesiastical tradition, rather than the clear sunlight of the inspired pages of the New Testament. But it was such light as the eyes of nations in their ignorance could bear. And it never ceased to shine until it disappeared in the daylight of the Great Reformation. The medieval church as a visible organization never had greater power over the minds of men. She controlled all departments of life from the cradle to the grave. She monopolized all the learning and made sciences and arts tributary to her. She took the lead in every progressive movement. She founded universities, built lofty cathedrals, stirred up the crusades, made and unmade kings, dispensed blessings and curses to all nations. It took centuries to rear up this imposing structure and centuries to take it down again. The key players of medieval scholasticism were Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, who lived from 1033 to 1109, Peter Abelard, Abelard, professor at the University of Paris, 1079 to 1142. Peter Lombard, teacher at Notre Dame, 1095 to 1160. Thomas Aquinas, 
who lived from 1225 to 1274, Duns of Oxford and Paris, 1265 to 1308, William of Ockham, 1285 to 1347, and Erasmus of Rotterdam, 1469 to 1536. Scholasticism is a term given to medieval theology. Its main characteristic was the attempt to explain and comprehensively systemize, systematize the theology of the Bible and of the early church fathers in terms of Aristotle's metaphysics, that is, the speculative study of being and reality, and dialectics, that is, the art of arriving at truth by displaying the contradictions in an opponent's argument and refuting them. The scholastics, medieval scholastics, sought to synthesize Aristotle and Augustine. The goal of the scholastics, or schoolmen, universal scholars, university scholars, was to put church doctrine in an orderly and comprehensive system drawn from and expressed in terms of the rationalistic philosophy of the ancient Greeks. In other words, scholasticism refers not only to a system of specific doctrines, it also refers to a way of systematizing and organizing theological ideas. Medieval scholasticism can be divided into three periods. The first is from the 11th century to the early 13th century. The second extending from the early, early middle 13th century to the late 13th century. And the third from the late 13th century to the Reformation in the early 16th century. The first phase is the rise, the second the flourishing, and third the gradual decline. The problems, defects, and dangers of medieval scholasticism began in its earliest phase, were fully developed in the second phase, and basically stagnated in the third phase. Although medieval scholasticism was influenced by a mild Augustinianism, it made major and fatal departures from Augustine, who taught that we must believe in order to understand. We must submit our minds and hearts to the written word of God and look at all of life in terms of that word if we are to understand life and the world the way God understands them. Psalm 36, 9 says, In thy light we see light. And Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. While paying lip service to that principle, the scholastics held that we must understand in order to believe. Notice what's the exact opposite of Augustine that says we must believe in order to understand. The scholastics held that we must understand in order to believe that faith is founded on reason that the human mind can develop a natural theology and system of ethics unaided by divine revelation, and that the faith is buttressed and proven by reason. This is the root that not only determined the form and content of scholasticism, it is also the reason for scholasticism's failure to construct a systematic theology and worldview that was faithful to the written word of God. Schaff says the schoolmen collected, analyzed, and systematized these dogmas and argued their reasonableness against all conceivable objections. 
the reformers throwing off the yoke of human authority and disparaging the schoolmen returned to the fountain of scripture and restated its truths. It was the aim of the schoolmen to accomplish two things, to reconcile dogma and reason and to arrange the doctrines of the church in an orderly rationalistic system, that is, to pour new wine into old wineskins. These systems, like our modern encyclopedias, were intended to be exhaustive. The schoolmen, however, went to the extreme of introducing into their discussions every imaginable question, questions which, if answered, would do no good except to satisfy an obsessive curiosity. In a rigid dialectical treatment, the doctrines of Christianity are in danger of losing their freshness and vital power and of being turned into a theological corpse, which is obvious if you've read any of these schoolmen. The schoolmen used all the forces of logic and philosophy to vindicate the orthodox system of theology. But they used much wood and straw in their construction. As the sounder exegesis and more scriptural theology of the reformers and later days have shown. There were problems with medieval scholasticism. First, it was defective in its choice of standards for its knowledge of God and in its knowledge of the Bible. The basic defect of the method of the scholastics was that they did not adopt the right standard of the written word of God, sola scriptura, in the ascertaining of the meaning of biblical statements and in the systematizing, expounding, and defending of those biblical doctrines. They were defective in their source of theological knowledge and in their rule by which theological truths are to be judged and interpreted. William Cunningham said this, Before the scholastic theology arose, the word of God had come to be very much neglected and superseded. And the knowledge necessary for interpreting it was almost universally lacking in the Western church. Long before the scholastic's time, it had become the almost universal practice to settle all theological disputes, not by studying the word of God and ascertaining the meaning of its statements, but by an appeal to tradition and the authority of the fathers and to the decrees of popes and councils. The schoolmen certainly did nothing to introduce a sounder method of theological investigation by appealing to Scripture and laboring to ascertain the exact meaning of its statements. On the contrary, they may be said to have still further corrupted it by introducing in combination with tradition and mere authority something resembling the rationalistic element of the supremacy of human reason. Not indeed that they formally avowed, avowedly laid down this principle, but that their neglect of Scripture and their unbounded indulgence in unwarranted and presumptuous speculations upon points in regard to which there could manifestly be no standard of appeal, but just their own reasonings, had a tendency to discourage it. That is faithfulness to Scripture. The true source of theology is the 66 books of the Bible, which is the self-authenticating revelation of God. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith reflects the truth of sola scriptura when it says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture, not in classical philosophy, nor in the church, nor in tradition, but in Scripture alone. In answer to Rome's claim that an infallible revelation is irrelevant without an infallible interpreter in the church, the Reformation answered that the church has always had an infallible book and a living and divine infallible interpreter of the Bible in the Holy Spirit of God who indwells every believer in Jesus. Furthermore, the revealed truths of the Bible do form a system. But that system must be drawn from the Bible itself and not imposed upon it as the medieval scholastics did. The Bible gives us a system of doctrine that is comprehensive, unified, logically self-consistent with an orderly structure that is drawn from the interconnections of the revealed truths of the Bible. Its focus is on God as he has revealed himself, hence theology is a word about God. This biblical revelation is systematic because the one who gave it is sovereign, rational, unchangeable, and knowable by revelation. Only such a God could reveal a self-consistent system of doctrine, and only about such a God is a systematic word possible. In 1897, the great Robert Dabney, professor of Union Theological Seminary, Virginia, gave an address defending the systematic nature of the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1643 by English Puritans and Scottish Presbyterians, as required by the biblical revelation. Quote, Divine so learned and able as those of the Westminster Assembly knew that the body of doctrine which they taught is a system of truth. That is to say, the several parts must stand together in order that the body may have stability. They're logically interdependent. The system is an arch whose strength is perfect as long as each stone holds its proper place. But the removal of any one loosens all the rest and endangers the fall of the whole. Or to use another similitude, our creed is like an organized living body in this, that the presence and healthy action of each part is essential to the safety of the body. The contemporary emphasis in some Reformed and Evangelical circles that God uses pictures and stories rather than merely doctrinal propositions to transmit the gospel is based on Karl Barth of the middle 20th century and his teaching that divine revelation is event, not propositional interpretation. This Bardian view led to a separation between divine revelation and the Bible that resulted in the downplaying of the Bible's inerrant and propositional revelation. It is true that God spoke in stories, but he told and explained those stories in propositions so that it is unwise and unbiblical to drive a wedge intentionally or unintentionally between divinely revealed stories, divinely revealed events, and divinely revealed propositions. After all, the Bible does make the claim that it is a body of revealed truth once for all delivered to the saints, spirit-produced thoughts and spirit-produced words. So the first flaw of medieval scholasticism 
is it was defective in its choice of standards for its knowledge of God and in its knowledge of the Bible. Second defect, it was defective in its attempted synthesis, bringing together, blending Christianity with Greek philosophy. The classical philosophy of the ancient and pagan Greeks and Romans, by the way, let me just give you something free. You have some people who talk about having schools that teach classical education. Christian and classical education. Go look up the word classical in the dictionary. It means pertaining to ancient Greek and Rome. The one thing we don't want in our educational system is things pertaining to ancient Greek and Greece and Rome. The classical philosophy of the ancient and pagan Greeks and Romans was built on four basic presuppositions which are anti-Christian to the core and which continue to be held by many people today, including professed Christians. One, knowledge of man and nature is obtained by observation. Only what man observes is true. Second, the meaning of life is founded on the power of human observation and reason to impose a logical order on the inherently meaningless facts of man's existence. Three, since all knowledge of nature and man is obtained by observation and reason, and since meaning in nature is that usefulness which reason finds in things, no ultimate meaning and purpose for the non-rational elements of life exists. The essence of human life is anxiety and restlessness. Fourth, the goal of man must be either cynicism or flight from humanity into the void of the intellectual, contemplative, the spiritual, or the heavenly. The effect of these classical presuppositions on Western civilization were religious, intellectual, social, moral, and scientific stagnation and darkness, coupled with the sense of dread as that worldview and the world it created began to collapse. In the place of the old pessimism and cynicism of Greece and Rome, Christianity brought hope, light, certainty, justice, and intellectual advance. Christianity's basic presuppositions are, first, truth and knowledge are by divine revelation. Two, ultimate order, coherence, meaning, and purpose in the universe and in man's existence exist only because the universe was created by the infinite personal God according to his eternal plan. Three, man's spiritual, physical, social existence in history has a direct link with the divinely ordained and ultimate meaning of the universe. Four, man stands in the creation as the image of God, which means that his fundamental orientation is to his creator and to his creator's revealed will rather than to the natural world around him. What medieval scholasticism, as well as many of the early church fathers, whom Nigel Lee refers to as the early church infants, failed to recognize was the antithesis between the unbelieving mind and the believing mind. Antithesis meaning the complete difference. Greg Bonson said this, We can hardly forget, even if we sometimes overlook the fact, that interpreting the world, reasoning about life, and developing philosophical convictions are things done by persons, not by mechanical devices like computers. Personal qualities and factors, attitudes, desires, aims, 
prejudices, and defects will be operative in any expression of, of opinion, line of reasoning, system of thought, or interpretation. Because there is a fundamental moral and spiritual contrast between believer and unbeliever, one is seeking to glorify God and understand the world in the light of God's word, while the other is self-seeking and in rebellion against God's word, the way in which they reason and argue will manifest an antithesis in attitude. Their subjective difference in attitude will affect everything they touch, everything about which they think and express themselves. Believers have the mind of Christ held captive by the word of Christ, in whom is deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Unbelieving thought that does not presuppose God's word is a vain deception by suppressing the truth, submitting to human traditions and reasonings according to the presuppositions of the world instead of Christ lead to a darkened mind and futile conclusions, wrote Bonson. Augustine, who remember lived from 354 to 430, taught that in order to understand any aspect of life, it must be understood in the light of the Bible as the written word of God. The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was a revival of Augustinianism. Thomas Aquinas, on the other hand, who lived from 1225 to 1274, taught that the Bible is necessary to understand some things, such as salvation and the sacraments, and even those doctrines he expressed in Aristotelian terms, but that human reason is fully capable of understanding many areas of life and society without reference to the Bible. Influenced by classical philosophy, he held that reason unassisted by divine revelation can create a theology from nature and can detect natural laws by which ethics and society can be constructed. This view supplanted Augustinianism as the centerpiece of Roman Catholic thought in medieval history. And with that transition came the corruption of the church and tyranny in the state. The Renaissance exploited Thomism, declaring that if the Bible is unnecessary to understand some aspects of life and society, it is unnecessary to understand any area of life and society. All that is needed is reason and natural law. In fact, the Bible was eventually seen during the Enlightenment as an obstacle to the acquisition and advancement of knowledge and, must, and should be discarded. So says today's humanist and postmodernist, who are children of the Renaissance and Enlightenment, which themselves grew out of the weakness of Thomism and medieval scholasticism, Thomism is the, ism is the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, and medieval scholasticism, which attempted to synthesize Christianity with pagan Greek and Roman thought, but which process ended with the prostituting of Christianity. All attempts at synthesizing classical thought with biblical Christianity should be problematic for the thinking Christian seeking to be consistent to his biblical worldview. First, classical thought is flawed because of its faulty epistemological foundation. Being rationalistic as well as at root irrationalistic, it assumes that human reason is autonomous, that is, independent of God, that it is competent to determine good and evil, truth and falsehood, reality and illusion, beauty and ugliness by itself, without any assistance by or reference to God and his Bible. Pagans, as well as Christians, using their reason correctly, can read nature and understand its laws. 
But the Bible teaches us that reason was not created by God to be the standard of good and evil, the source of law and meaning. Rather, it was given to us as a tool to understand and apply the infallible standard of the written word of God. Man's reason is not only created by God, it's fully known by God and fully determined by God. Furthermore, man's reason cannot be autonomous, independent of God, not only because it is divinely created, but also because it has been damaged by man's fall into sin, in that man's heart, the controlled center of his being, which guides his reason, is in rebellion against his creator, said Archie Jones. Second, man's mind is not neutral. All people have presuppositions and prejudices from which they try to understand life, although not all people are aware of this fact. Presuppositions are those convictions and commitments of the heart about God, ourselves, and life that have a determining influence on all we think and do. Man does not think with presupposition less impartiality, but rather in terms of presupposed religious ideas about God, ethics, men, and things. The Bible is clear that men have two basic religious philosophies, one anti-Christian and the other Christian. These two religious philosophies take diametrically opposite views of God and His Word. Moreover, although the unregenerate mind cannot escape the clear and unambiguous revelation of God in all creation, including in His own constitution and conscience as a human being in the image of God, because of His depravity and hostility, He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Gary North wrote, The Bible explicitly denies any such neutrality. Men are divided into saved and lost, keepers of God's covenant and breakers of God's covenant. There's no agreement between the two positions. Human reason, unaided by God's revelation, untwisted by God's grace, cannot be expected to devise a universal law code or interpretation of life based on any presumed universal human logic. What mankind's universal reason can be expected to do is to rebel against God and his law. Ethical rebels are not logically faithful to God. Third, if man can discover universal truths and laws in nature and logic by his own reason, observation, experience, and scientific investigation unaided by divine revelation, then why does man need divine revelation at all? God in the Bible becomes superfluous at best and detrimental at worst. Superfluous, says John Robbins, because if God is reasonable... He can simply and only command those things which we can discover on our own anyway, and detrimental because he may command things that we cannot discover using our own reasons and even things that may be contrary to our own reasons. Skip the next paragraph. An attempted blending between classical thought and Christianity is dangerous because of its consequences as well as its premises. When such a synthesis is sought, nature always eats up grace, to allude to Francis Schaeffer. As the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The belief of classical thought in the autonomy and neutrality of man's reason leads to a denial of God, the secularization of human life and society, and the denial of objective and absolute moral standards. The further consequences of these assumptions include the denial of the rationality of man in creation and the rise of modern anarchism and totalitarianism, 
the enslavement of nations and races, mass murders on an unprecedented scale, and the present crisis in liberty and justice in the West. Autonomous natural law theory is a slippery slope, which leads naturally downward to its own destruction and the destruction of cultures and nations which follow its way, said Jones. Only biblical Christianity in its purest human expression, that is, the Reformed faith, has a basis for knowledge and morality precisely because it is divinely revealed and does not seek to derive truth or ethics from logic, experience, or nature. John Robbins deals a death blow to the scholastic's view of natural law and reason, both in medieval times as well as today. He says, is it not evident that we must go out of, or rather someone must break into our experience in order to establish law? Only revelation, only commands from a lawgiver can provide us with the needed ethical guidance. Natural law theorists, rather than worshiping the creator and obeying his law, worship the creature and attempt to discover her laws. Natural law theory is in the final analysis a form of idolatry, the replacing of God with human reason. What has nature to do with law? Nothing. Law is God's commanding. Law cannot be discovered by men. Neither can law be made by men. Its source is neither the university nor the legislative chamber. Governments may enact statutes. Judges may pronounce decisions. Juries may deliver verdicts. None can make law but God. All honor due to statutes, decisions, and verdicts is itself commanded by God. There is nothing in the things themselves that warrants honor. Our compliance with them is mandated by law, by God's commands. Where they contravene law, they are not to be obeyed. For we ought to obey God rather than men. The medieval synthesis tried to keep biblical law and natural law, Christian theology and classical philosophy together. But with the Enlightenment and in modern times, the natural law doctrine cut itself loose from any attachment to biblical law. And natural law and natural theology became completely naturalistic. Now only power remains in postmodernism. Natural law theory abandoned reliance on the revealed law of God of the Bible in order to assert its autonomy and universality only to lose both its autonomy and naturalness self-attesting universal validity to the new sovereignty of the power state. Men seek a sovereignty greater than themselves, a sovereignty which can guarantee meaning to their lives and success in their many ventures. If God is not the source of law and law is not universally valid because it is revealed law in the Bible, then only a hypothetical universal power state remains to give man the sovereignty he seeks, said North. This means that humanistic law is inescapably totalitarian law. The point is that the synthesis of medieval scholasticism has resulted in the supremacy of rationalism, irrationalism, and empiricism, and the degradation of Christianity. And the rise of the supremacy of human autonomy has resulted in the loss of human liberty in, uh, in the totalitarian state. Whenever a synthesis is attempted, nature always eats up grace. We're going to come back and talk about this, I think, in our various la uh, lecture 
as we talk about what happened to New England Puritanism. Why did New England Puritanism fail after being such a great, great establishment? Third defect. Medieval scholasticism was defected in the system of doctrine it produced. The philosophical synthesis, with its emphasis to one degree or another, on the autonomy of man produced a semi-Pelagian salvation by merit as it moved farther and farther from Augustine's soteriology, that is the study of salvation, with his emphasis on sovereign and prevenient grace. Prevenient means to come before. Grace has to come before and do a work in you before you can believe. We've already discussed Pelagianism as one of the great heresies Augustine had to expose and refute. It taught that man is basically good, that he can perfect himself, and that his real problem is not himself but his environment. The Catholic Church was not satisfied with Pelagianism. Therefore, in the 5th century, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Orange, the Council of Florence, and the Council of Carthage. Ironically, his views were also anathematized at the Council of Trent in the 16th century in the canons of the 6th session. Sadly, the church would not stand unflinchingly on Augustine's doctrines of man, original sin, grace, and predestination. And so in the 5th century, a middle way was offered the church between Pelagianism and Augustinianism. This moderated form of Pelagianism is called semi-Pelagianism. It began to infect the church in the 5th century with John Cassian, a Syrian monk living in southern Gaul. He and others objected to Augustine's doctrine of sin and grace, the total bondage of the human will, the priority and irresistibility of grace and predestination. These early semi-Pelagians taught that man has retained the ability to seek God. Now, from here on out, you've got to listen carefully because you're going to realize that most of the Christians you know are semi-Pelagian. These early semi-Pelagians taught that man has retained the ability to seek God in and of himself apart from any movement of God's grace. It denied any real effect of original sin on human nature. And it admitted that man's nature was injured by original sin, but maintained that man still has free will and the ability to cooperate with God's grace in the salvation process. By the way, the word itself, Pelagianism, was not coined until the late 16th century. Semi-Pelagianism was condemned by the church at the Second Council of Orange in A.D. 529. Although the medieval scholastics give lip service to a mild Augustinianism to one degree or another, medieval scholasticism was semi-Pelagian because of its attempt to synthesize biblical doctrines with classical philosophy. Its three basic teachings are semi-Pelagianism. Human nature is neither good or bad, but injured. Just as an injured person cannot quite do whatever he would like to do, so likewise, because of original sin, man's moral abilities became restricted. His free will was remained, 
but was weakened by the fall. Man then can still decide to seek and receive help. Man's need for grace. Although semi-Pelagianism believes in man's need for grace, for man is too weak to help himself, man by his own free will is able to decide whether he wants God's grace. Does that sound right or wrong to you? Semi-Pelagianism, whatever it is. Man by his own free will is able to decide whether he wants God's grace. Whereas Pelagius taught that salvation is totally man's own doing, and Augustine taught that salvation is totally from God, semi-Pelagianism teaches that salvation is a combination of the efforts of both man and God. You take the first step and God will do the rest. According to semi-Pelagianism, salvation is accomplished when man decides to cooperate with God And accepts the grace God offers him. As some have said, most particularly Manfred Gutsky, God casts a vote for you. Satan casts a vote against you. And you must cast the deciding vote. That's good semi-Pelagianism. God's sovereignty. Semi-Pelagianism essentially maintains that the sovereignty of God is limited by man's decision to cooperate with God or not. God's gospel of salvation in Christ can be rejected by man and so return to God empty. Though God may wish to save someone, he can only do so if that person chooses to accept it and cooperate with grace. I'll tell you who helped me become a Calvinist was Billy Graham. I was in seminary, in Columbia Columbia Theological Seminary, and I went to Billy Graham School of Evangelism in Kansas City, Missouri. There were about 2,000 of us there. Wayne Rogers may have been there, I'm not sure. But there were about 2,000 of us there, and of course, hardly any of them were Presbyterians. So Billy Graham comes and speaks, and we're all thrilled that Billy comes and speaks to us, and I still to this day have a great respect for him as a Christian man. Uh, And he said this, he said, Now I want to talk to you Presbyterians out there. A few of us, boy, we looked up, we thought this is great, Billy's going to talk to us. I was just starting to read the Reformed faith, just beginning. And Billy said, I want to assure you that I believe in total depravity. He said, I believe that man is so dead in his trespasses, and this is a quote, I believe that man is so dead in his trespasses and sins, he cannot do anything at all to save himself. Except believe in Jesus. Well, that confused me. So then that night they had the crusade in the big football stadium and we're standing, sitting up there in the bleachers and have all these hundreds of people come forward. And Billy's standing there and he says to us who are in the bleachers, now you prayed for these people who came forward and that's why they came forward. And you must pray for them after they leave because Satan's going to try to tempt them. But there's no use in praying for them until they decide for Jesus because God has done everything he can do to save them. Great semi-Pelagianism. 
Semi-Pelagianism, let's see, who is this talking? This may be R.C. Sproul. No. Semi-Pelagianism said this. Yes, there was a fall. Yes, there is such a thing as original sin. Yes, the constituent nature of humanity has been changed by this state of corruptions, and all parts of our humanity have been significantly weakened by the fall, so much so that without the assistance of divine grace, nobody can possibly be redeemed. So that grace is not only helpful, but it's absolutely necessary for salvation. While we are so fallen that we cannot be saved without grace, we are not so fallen that we do not have the ability to accept or reject the grace when it's offered to us. In other words, we're not really dead in sin, we're just sort of sick. The will is weakened, but it's not enslaved. There remains in the core of our being an island of righteousness that remains untouched by the fall. Not really totally depraved. It is out of that little island of righteousness, that little parcel of goodness that is still intact in the soul or in the will, that is the determinative difference between heaven and hell. It is that little island that must be exercised when God does his thousand steps of reaching out to us. But in the final analysis, it is that one step that we take that determines whether we go to heaven or hell whether we exercise that little righteousness that is in the core of our being or whether we do not. Ironically, the church condemned semi-Pelagianism as vehemently as it had condemned original Pelagianism. Yet by the time you get to the 16th century and you read the Catholic understanding of what happens in salvation, the church basically repudiated what Augustine taught. The church concluded that there still remains this freedom that is intact in the human will, and that man must cooperate and assent to the prevenient grace that's offered to them by God. If we exercise that will, if we exercise a cooperation with whatever powers we have left, we will be saved. And so in the 16th century, the church re-embraced semi-Pelagianism. Sproul said this, and that may have been Sproul I was quoting. At the time of the Reformation, all the Reformers agreed on one point. The moral inability of fallen human beings to incline themselves to the things of God. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That all people, in order to be saved, are totally dependent, not 99%, but 100% dependent upon the monergistic work of regeneration in order to come to faith in Christ. And that faith itself is a gift of God. It is not that we are offered salvation and that we will be born again if we choose to believe. But we cannot even believe. Until God in his grace and in his mercy first changes the disposition of our souls through his sovereign work of regeneration. In other words, what the reformers all agreed with was, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. Like Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to me unless it is given to him of the Father.
that the necessary condition for anybody's faith and anybody's salvation is regeneration. So ask your Christian friends this question, true or false? Don't help them. Is this statement true or false? You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be born again. Let me say it again. True or false? You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be born again. I dare say that most of your friends would say it's true. It's good, good semi-Pelagianism. Lousy Bible. You must be born of God before you'll even have the desire or the ability to believe in Jesus. Modern evangelicalism remains in captivity to semi-Pelagianism to this very day. We hear over and over again that if a person is to be born again, he must first exercise faith. He must choose to be born again. But the Bible says the opposite. 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice believes is present tense. Has been is perfect, a past tense. And John 1, 12 and 13 say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. According to George Barnapole, 70% of all professing evangelical Christians believe that man is basically good. Over 80% hold the view that God helps those who help themselves. These views are not only semi-Pelagian, they are Pelagian. One thing is clear, says Sproul, that you can be purely Pelagian and be completely welcome in the evangelical movement today. Modern evangelicalism today looks with suspicion at Reformed theology, that is Augustinianism, which has become sort of the third-class citizen of evangelicalism. While Augustine believed that man could do nothing in and of himself to please God, not even believe, until regenerated by God's almighty, sovereign, prevenient, and irresistible grace, and while Pelagius believed that natural man possessed the power to produce faith and godliness in himself without the assistance of grace, the scholastics held that man could believe with the help of God's grace, but that that grace was not efficacious, prevenient, sovereign, irresistible. They said that the free will of man acts with the assistance and cooperation of grace. This belief in the autonomy, freedom of man gave birth to the doctrine of justification by meritorious works that dominates Roman Catholicism to this very day. The scholastics never conceived of justification as an imputation or crediting of the righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner immediately and irreversibly upon believing in Christ. They saw justification as instantaneous and as progressive. At baptism, the sacrament of faith, a person receives regeneration and justification. Hence, they speak of baptismal regeneration. He receives the grace necessary says Roman Catholicism, to live a life of faithful obedience to God and the sacraments of the church in order to merit full justification. This justification, however, may be lost. 
not only through reoccurring unbelief, but by the committing of any mortal sin, although faith in Christ remains in the heart. It may be recovered by the sacrament of penance, consisting, says Burkhoff, in contrition, confession, together with absolution and the works of satisfaction. Both the guilt of sin and eternal punishment may be removed by absolution, but the temporal penalties of sin can only be canceled on the basis of works of satisfaction. Sproul says, Rome has always insisted that faith is a necessary condition for justification. What they denied historically is that it is a sufficient condition. The Reformation was waged not over the question of justification by faith, but over the issue of justification by faith alone. It was the sola of sola fide that was the central point of dispute. Nor did Rome consider the merit of Christ to be unnecessary. The issue was how the objective, redemptive work of Christ is subjectively appropriated by the sinner. And crucial to the controversy was the objective grounds or basis of justification. The reformers insisted that the righteousness of Christ is the sole grounds of our justification. The word alone was the basis on which the entire reformation of doctrine of justification was erected. The absence of the word alone from evangelicals and Catholics together, joint affirmation, is most distressing. What is this, says Sproul? The glaring absence of the word alone makes the statement totally inadequate as a rallying point for historical evangelicalism. Resulting from medieval scholasticism, here's the official stance of the Roman Catholic Church on the Protestant and Reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone, taken from the statements of the Council of Trent, and we read both of those statements earlier that condemns uh, the uh, doctrines of the Reformed faith. So then scholasticism's view of justification by faith, which has become the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church according to the Council of Trent, is that grace plus the merit of Christ plus good works by the believer plus meritorious behavior by the believer equals justification, increased grace, and eternal life. It is obvious that according to this view, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is not sufficient to save us. Over against Roman scholasticism stands the pure and unmixed truth of the gospel of the Bible as expressed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Next paragraph. A similar semi-Pelagianism and losable justification by baptism and faithful obedience have crept back into Reformed and evangelical churches largely unawares until their exposure a few years ago. These views are typical of representatives of two closely related movements, the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision, which amount to a betrayal of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, a return to Roman Catholicism, and another gospel than that proclaimed by the Apostle Paul. The view of these men is that all who are baptized with water are incorporated into Christ regenerated, justified, and are recipients of salvation contingent 
on a life of faithful obedience to God. By apostasy and excommunication, such a person loses his union with Christ, his regeneration, justification, and salvation. Election and reprobation, they say, are not irreversible. Many of these men deny that justification is based on the imputation of the active and passive righteousness of Christ to the believer. And we often hear them ridicule the fact that our salvation is based exclusively on the merits of Christ in his life and death in our place. Such a revived semi-Pelagianism has no room for the historic and biblical doctrine of effectual calling which says effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. The point is this. A choice must be made between Roman Catholicism, the new perspective on Paul, and the federal vision on the one hand, and biblical, historic, and reform Christianity on the other. Those who are trying to hold in tension their new paradigms of justification, baptism, and the covenant with their commitments to the definitions of the Protestant and Reformed confessions are being theologically schizophrenic, perhaps, out of fear or hesitancy of casting off the old views too quickly. But if the history of theology teaches us anything... It is that when a generation of men began to innovate in theology, trying to keep the new and old in balance, the next generation will be more consistent with their theological innovations and with that consistency will cast off the old. So then, as Martin Luther preached, you will never find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Christ takes all your sins upon himself and bestows all his righteousness upon you. Our Lord Jesus Christ alone is the garment of grace that is put upon us, that God our Father may not look upon us as sinners, but receive us as righteous, holy, godly children, and give us eternal life. In my heart, one article, he said, alone reigns supreme, that of faith in Christ, by whom, through whom, and in whom all my theological thinking flows back and forth day and night. And still I find that I have grasped this so high and broad and deep a wisdom in a weak and poor and fragmented manner. And John Calvin declared just as strongly, wherever the knowledge of justification by faith alone is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown.